Hey, everybody. Host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbV. In each episode, Nora has a real conversation with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they took action to understand this disease. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start Embracing the Journey and learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Hey, everybody. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey, everybody, we're going on tour and you can come out and see us in Orlando on August 12th, Nashville on September 6th. And we're going to wrap it all up on September 9th in our hometown of Atlanta, GA. That's right. And these are the last shows of the year. This has been a really good show this year. We're super excited about it. And this is going to be your only chance to be in the theater with us and, you know, like 15, 1600 of your closest pals. So go to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our tour page for links and information. And you can also go to linktree slash SYSK for the same stuff. We'll see you guys this August and September. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck and Jerry's here. You know, the usual gang of idiots. And this is Mm. Stuff You Should Know. (laughs) Very nice. Yeah, I kind of had to say something like that at least, don't you think? Right off the bat. Oh, sure. Right off the bat, like a bunt that hits uh, yourself in the foot. (laughs) Uh, So you were, of course, referencing... um, Mad Magazine, and that was how they referred to their to themselves to their staff. Yeah, basically forever. Yeah, uh, one of the, one of the great all time uh, satirical rags. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the earliest. Uh, it's funny, right before you got on, Jerry said something about uh, did the cracked website come after the Mad Magazine? And I said, well, I think she conflated them. And I was like, no, I was like, cracked was cracked and mad was mad. Right. And I very quickly looked up because I was like, you know, I think cracked was kind of like a mad ripoff, but they were pretty close together. Um, mad started in 52 and cracked started in 58. Yeah, but cracked was very far from the only mad imitator. I won't say ripoff, but imitator. Um, what else? There was Hugh Hefner had one called Trump. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, There were other ones called Humbug, both of which uh, Mad originator Harvey Kurtzman worked on. There was apparently, it was like a thing. Like Mad made such a splash early on, as we'll see, that um, it it basically created a whole new genre, I guess. Yeah. And you and I were both fans as as youngins, Uh, right? I mean, we've talked about this. Oh, yeah. I was going through, there's a... A site called Doug Guilford's Mag Cover Site. Yeah, so you can spend I, a lot of time there. Yeah, you can. I believe he has like, like I think there's 553 total original issues that they ever uh-huh. released. And I believe he has them all, at least the cover scanned. And then some of them he's gone to the trouble of scanning the contents too. So you can read Mad Magazine <sighs> online. Yeah. But I went through and looked at covers 
until I, I started recognizing one, like I own that. Mm-hmm. And they kept going through, and then they started to taper off, and I didn't recognize them anymore. And in doing so, I was able to to go back and figure out that I was an avid Mad Magazine reader mm-hmm. from September of 1986 through September of 1988, my entire um, 10th, 11th, and 12th years of life. I did the same thing. <laughs> awesome. Because I was kind of curious, too. I was like, when did I even start? And, man, I was, of course, I'm a little older than you, but I was earlier aged as well uh, because I was into it from, like, 80 to Uh 85-ish. So I was, like, uh, 9 through 14 and 15. Nice. And then a little bit after that, I'm sure. But um, I don't know if you were like me. Mad was an expensive magazine for a kid. It was cheap. It even said so on the cover. (laughs) It was more expensive than other magazines. And one reason is uh, because they did not, uh, until 2001, have uh, advertisements Mm -hmm. to also bring in money. So they made their money off of uh, newsstands and subscriptions. And I, I just remember... You know, throwing down for a mad cost a little dough. So I didn't have a ton of them. Uh, I got some hand-me-downs from Scott, of course. Nice. But so many of those covers and movie parodies, uh, especially from the great Mort Drucker, really just stuck with me. Yeah, no, same here. And he was far and away the the greatest of all the mad illustrators. And all of them were really great in their own way. But Mort Drucker was yeah. Uh, if you're familiar with guy. Mad, <laughs> all of the movie parodies, the TV parodies that were just that looked dead on like the people, that was Mort Drucker. Um, and he ha- was named, at least in one of the articles I, I read, as possibly the greatest caricature, caricature artist of all time, like in history. Yeah. And I would not really I wouldn't I wouldn't go against that. No, um, he did almost exclusively movies, though, because their TV guy was um angela Ange- torres yeah angela torres did mostly tv okay and drucker did mostly movies but they i mean they had similar styles it wasn't like yeah. you know night and day like comparing don martin and, and right. you know mort drucker or something like <laughs> yeah. that but and totally. the, no shade on angela torres's work either so yeah. but yes they were more expensive than comic books for sure like even out of the gate the first mad magazine cost 25 cents which is like several hundred dollars today, I presume. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was it, when you can get a, a comic book for like 10 cents at the time. Yeah. And, and you know, it cannot be overstated how much Mad sort of laid the groundwork for modern satire. Uh, and then, as we'll see, also uh, musical satire and things like The Onion and uh, The National Lampoon, things like that probably wouldn't. Well, they maybe would have eventually existed, but they certainly had a nice paved road in front of them, thanks to Mad. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to imagine the world without things like The Simpsons and The Daily Show and all that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you could argue that it would be at least a different world, like you were saying, if, mm-hmm. if not that they didn't exist at all um, because Mad, because of Mad Magazine. It's crazy. And one of the things that Mad Magazine did is another thing that it's really hard to imagine um, not existing in the world is teaching healthy skepticism mm-hmm. to kids, um, yeah. adolescents, basically. Uh, and I guess Art Spiegelman, he created Mouse, right? M-A-U-S, the graphic yeah. novel. Okay. He had a great quote that I think 
really kind of got it across at the point of mad, especially early on through the mid 70s, is that the entire adult world is lying to you and we are part of the adult world. Good yeah. luck to you. <laughs> and that was I mean, that's what they did. And and it was a it, I, I mean, I'm sure I learned a lot of skepticism from Matt as well. Absolutely. Um, you just couldn't read it and not pick it up, you know? Yeah. That was the totally. point. Uh, so shall we talk history? Let's talk history, Chuck. Uh, all right. Well, we got we have to talk about EC Comics. Uh, it was short for Education Comics, founded in uh, 44 by a guy named Maxwell Gaines, who was one of the progenitors of comic books, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and EC Comics was uh, ended up merging with Detective Comics. Boy, I hope I didn't get this wrong. Uh, to form what we knew later on as DC. Okay. And from the Maxwell Gaines side and from EC Comics, we got titles like uh, The Flash and Hawkman, mm-hmm. uh, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman were probably the biggest ones. And I guess I should say this was the original incarnation uh, as All-American Publications. Right. And then later became EC. Yes, but the, those characters he helped bring to reality. Yeah. So he was a legend in, in the field, still is, in the field of comics. But he died early, um, I guess fairly youngish, and at, at least suddenly. I think I saw a boat accident or something like that. Oof. And his son, William Gaines, Bill Gaines, uh, took over the family business. And he had slightly different tastes than his father. He wasn't really interested in printing religious tracts or comics that featured people who were herding, you know, camels and sheep and, and talking mm-hmm. about God. Um, he he wanted to basically go in the exact opposite direction. So he changed the name of EC from Education Comics to Entertainment Comics, and he started publishing what became some of the most notorious, gory, violent, gleefully sick horror magazines around. Yeah, it was... Um... It was sort of a way to stand out because comics were huge, huge business. Um, I think by the 1950s, there were about 1.2 billion comics sold a year. That's like the Uh, number of podcasts now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And 25% were crime and horror. Well, kind of like podcasts, Mm -hmm. actually. Uh, And so EC, you know, Tales from the Crypt, we have EC to thank for that. Um, And just lots of that, you know. You, you could sort of see the foundation of MAD being laid, even though MAD didn't do horror sci-fi per se. Of course, they dabbled in that in mm-hmm. satire, but uh-huh. um, they started to tackle things with themes like, you know, racism and uh, police corruption and bigotry and stuff like that. Yeah, so there's like the contours of teaching kids like, hey, these things exist, but it was in the form of like horror comics or war comics or cowboy comics or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so this is a time where, I mean, we're talking the early 50s, right? This is like um, Pleasantville-type America. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about, like, drug addiction and stuff to, to 10- and 12-year-olds. So it was pretty groundbreaking what they were doing. And they, um, because of that, they, they drew the attention of the moral panic that started to erupt over comic books um, that apparently was brought on by a psychiatrist named Frederick or Friedrich Wertham, Wertham, probably Frederick Wertham, but uh, he wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent. And in it, he specifically called out some of the EC comics and described, you know, the um, what was going on in them. And it was basically saying comic books are corrupting our youth. They're the reason 
that juvenile delinquents exist. It's comic books. And the Senate um, and Congress said, oh, we should we should look into this then. Yeah. So, you know, they formed a Senate subcommittee in uh, spring of 1954. As they do. As they do. Uh, and that uh, Wortham or Wertham, <laughs> as you, I think, probably correctly pronounced. Thanks. Uh, he kind of opened up by saying, uh, this is one original quote, uh, I hate to say it, Senator, but I think Hitler was a beginner compared to the comic book industry. Uh, they get the children much younger. So you can kind of see the hysteria going on of what they called the comic book menace. Plus completely ignoring the Hitler youth. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and one very famous exchange that if you look up anything on this, uh, these subcommittee hearings, uh, came between um, Gaines's son, uh, who, like you said, took over for Pops, mm -hmm. and uh, a senator named Estes uh, Kefauver. Kefauver. Kefauver? Mm-hmm. Not Kefauver. Kefauver. I think it was Kefauver. <laughs> I can't remember if th this is the famous Kefauver hearings or if he held some other stuff, but he he was uh, he liked to hold hearings, from what I understand. Of course, uh, he was a Democrat from Tennessee, and. Uh, there was one exchange between Gaines and Keith Alver where he says, uh, where they're talking about, you know, one of the covers. And he said, this seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up, which has been severed uh, from her body. Do you think this is in good taste? And this is after Gaines had already said, you know, our limit is to publish within the bounds of good taste. Uh -huh. uh, and Gaines said, yes, sir, I do for the cover of a horror comic. Uh, a cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as, holding the head a little higher so that the neck can be seen dripping blood from it mm -hmm. and moving the body over a little further so that the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody. And the senator said, you have blood coming out of her mouth. And Gaines says, a little. And Kefauver <laughs> says, here is blood on the axe. I think most adults are shocked by that. So that was a very famous exchange where Gaines, he, he went on to basically make the point in what may have been the first, you know, mic drop. Um, I won't read the whole quote, but he basically is talking about the fact of juvenile delinquency. Uh, he said it's a product of real environment mm -hmm. in which the child lives and not the fiction he reads. Uh, there are many problems that reach our children today. The problems are economic and social, and they are complex. And he was right, but it didn't matter. No, and I mean, looking back 75 years later, you're just kind of like, oh, that's neat that that happened. But if you kind of put yourself in this moment, Bill Gaines was the only comic book publisher, as far as I could tell, who was willing to step up to the Senate yeah. and be like, no, this is all wrong. This guy's mm -hmm. a crackpot. We actually have real societal problems that are causing juvenile delinquency. And you guys are coming after comic books. Yeah. He took on the Senate um, or at least the Senate committee. And mm -hmm. it was a, they were very public hearings. And he stepped up when no one else would. Um, and I read an account of the whole thing on the Comics Association site. And they said that at first he was just killing it, but then he started to kind of slow down, lose focus, and he ended up mm -hmm. getting pummeled by the senators. And some of his um, less desirable quotes ended up on the front page of the New York Times. Right. They equated it to him taking Benzedrine too early so that he peaked <laughs> and started to get tired during the, the hearings because the hearings were postponed. But regardless, he got he was defeated. Um, and some people actually say if he hadn't have drummed up all that attention and drew the ire of the Senate, who knows what would have happened. But the, the upshot was that the, the, the comic book publishers got together and said, 
Whoa, 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 whoa. You guys don't have to censor us. We don't need government censors. We can do this ourselves. We're going to create the Comic Magazine Association of America. And within that, we're going to create a committee, a board, a review board called the Comic Code Authority. And every single comic book that is published in this country will be reviewed and either given a stamp of approval or rejected by the Comics Code Authority. And you can rely on us. Just stay out of this. Yeah, and this was... uh... This is about three months and change after the end of the hearings. So they were they were clearly kind of working on this. You know, I doubt if they just threw that together last second, like they saw the writing on the wall and got together. And, you know, this was good in a way because it kept the Senate out of their business. But what it also did was kind of self-censor because you couldn't all of a sudden get a, a comic out there unless it had this stamp of approval from the code authority. Mm -hmm. And if it had the word weird or crime or terror or horror, just in the title, it was rejected right off the bat. Yes. So um, the, the, I mean, the choice was clear. It was either, you know, fold your operation or start submitting to these standards that the comic code authority is, is laying down now. Um, And Bill Gaines said, we're okay, that's it. We're just not going to publish those comic books anymore. And he stopped publishing almost every single comic book he had, Mm -hmm. except for one. There was one comic book that they had released previously, and it was a humor comic. And it was called um, Tales Calculated to Drive You Mad. And that was the origin of Mad Magazine. It was a humor comic book that was the one thing that remained after Bill Gaines burned down his entire comic book publishing empire rather than submit to censorship. You forgot the colon. <laughs> I was leaving that for you. <laughs> uh, calculated to drive you mad. And by the way, mad is always in all caps. Mm-hmm. Uh, colon, humor in a jugular vein. <laughs> Pretty good. It is good. So, I, so it's not an overstatement to say that Bill Gaines was a bit of a hero for being mm-hmm. willing to stand up to you know, a moral panic and put himself out there as potentially the face of, you know, the evil that everybody was worried about. And then just saying like, okay, I I lost, but I'm not going to just, you know, beat if you beat, you beat me, but that doesn't mean I'm going to join you. I'm going to go figure out another way to do it. So he just kept going in a different direction. All right. I think that's a very robust setup for us. (laughs) So uh, we're going to collect our thoughts and we'll be right back. Hey everyone, host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep, along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start, embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life 
with chronic migraine. You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, As everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey there, everybody. Here's some bonus stuff you should know. This time it's about traveling to Orlando for business. Orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings. Dr. Michael Edwards, CEO of Ocean Insight, said it best. Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. And when the day is done, you can kick off each evening at one of 46 Michelin-rated restaurants. What's not to love? So check out Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. I know we're going to talk about things we love with Mad, but um, two movie parodies that really stood out mm-hmm. were movies that I didn't even see at the time. <laughs> yeah. or actually, three of them. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was kind of the fun thing about Matt is I wasn't allowed to see some of this stuff. Oh, okay. But I could read the parody. So um, I remember uh, Crymore versus Crymore <laughs> instead of Kramer versus Kramer sure. uh, was a big one. Uh, being not all there for being there. Mm-hmm. And the the one for The Shining, and I can't remember. It wasn't The Shining. That was The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember what it was called, but I remember reading The Shining parody, too, like long before I could see that. Film. Oh, man, I want to read that one. I'll bet it was just legendary. Yeah, it was good. I don't remember any particular ones, but I mean, I know that there were ones on like Alf and Rambo and. Um, see, you were just after me. Yeah. C- combined, we have a really good swatch. But they would also do like um, a, like adult stuff. This wasn't like they weren't like, what's the cool movie with teens right now? Like they did one, mm-hmm. a cover one on L.A. Law. Well, Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, Kramer versus Kramer. It's a great example, yeah. too. But that's funny. That's like people getting their news from The Daily Show today. You were getting to watch movies that you weren't allowed to see through Mad Magazine. Yeah. Well, and we'll kind of see why here in a minute. Um, that was a very nice setup, actually. 
I think so, too. My thoughts still aren't collected, though, so <laughs> we might be in trouble. Uh, all right. So Tales Calculated to Drive You Mad is the only title that Bill Gaines stuck with. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a cartoonist named uh, from EC named Harvey Kurtzman, mm-hmm. who was an Army vet in World War II. And he did military comics for EC, but kind of got tired of this and was like, you know, I'm a funny guy. I got a sense of humor. I'd rather work on humor things because I'm a big fan of humor magazines. And he said, why don't we spoof other comics, like do a comic that satirizes and spoofs comics. And so they started doing that. They started um, spoofing horror comics, uh, sci-fi comics. Um, Bill Gaines was beside himself. He thought it was brilliant. And Mad, sort of as we knew it, was really born when Kurtzman had that idea. Yeah, and and one of the reasons it was so brilliant was because they were using the same artists and writers Mm -hmm. who were creating those comics for the spoof. So they were really, like, dead on, and they looked like they were supposed to look, and, like, they had this, like, the in-joke humor of anybody who was a fan of those comics. So it was a pretty cool idea to start. And um, it was right up Kurtzman's alley, for sure, because he'd kind of gotten bored with some of the other comics, like war comics and stuff like that. Um, but it wasn't, it was not a hit out of the gate at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it was apparently, I think, issue number four in 1953. That was the one that um, that really kind of caught everyone's attention because they lampooned Superman um, right. with the pretty obvious title, Super Duper Man. <laughs> but it's it's really involved and funny, and uh, it, it's still today. I was reading it this morning. I was like, this is pretty funny. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, that very first panel has uh, Super Duper Man punching an, uh, an old person on crutches. Uh, it was a very dark character. Clark Bent was the, um, the you know, the alter ego. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's noteworthy, because they had, uh, Dave uh, Roos helped us with this. He pointed out they had already done these spoofs like Flesh Garden and dragged net instead of dragnet for the TV side. Mm-hmm. But they got sued. Um, well, not sued, but they got a cease and desist from DC Comics and sort of Streisand effect before Streisand was, uh, knew that there was going to be an effect named for her. <laughs> right. Uh, it got attention. And all of a sudden, kids were reading these comic parodies. Yeah, there was a good one in um, June 1954 on Starchy, which is Archie. Mm, and careful. I mean, <laughs> right. it was, um, again, really like well-drawn, really interesting. Um, if you took a, like a Archie and ran it through like what would happen in the real world, but it's still a parody, that's what <laughs> they came up with. And like, so comic books were incredibly popular at the time. Like you were saying there are billions being printed, right? Yeah. Um, so this magazine or this comic book was spoofing comic books. So they just went in and, and, just caught on like wildfire. So this was the one that Bill Gaines had left after he stopped publishing the horror comics and the cowboy comics and the war comics and the sci-fi comics. Yeah. And so you sort of hinted that, um, you know, Kramer versus Kramer and L.A. Law, these were sort of, it wasn't necessarily stuff for kids. Mm -hmm. And that happened when they made the switch from uh, a comic book parodying and satirizing other comic books to a magazine satirizing other magazines. Um, A couple of stories why this happened. Uh, One was that uh, Gaines was like, hey, listen, we're not going to be under the comic code authority Mm -hmm. if we turn ourselves into a magazine. Um, But apparently one of the real reasons um, that wasn't as public was 
Uh, Harvey Kurtzman wanted to do this. Uh, he was sort of bored with the comic book thing, uh, wanted to get into magazines. And so to keep Kurtzman around, who was just a, a key early cog, um, switched to a, a larger format, to a glossy magazine. And all of a sudden they were spoofing magazines. And Kurtzman specifically even said, uh, for the past two years now, Matt has been dulling the senses of the country's youth. Now we get to work on the adults. <laughs> right. Even though, I mean, I'm sure there were some adults reading it, but every kid I knew read it. But it did definitely like uh, update their their readership into a slightly higher age category from, I think so, you yeah. know, I think teenagers read comic books back then, but this was like, you know, you could find teenagers and now maybe college kids reading it as well because it was just geared slightly differently just by default yeah. because it was parodying other magazines, right? So um, Harvey Kurtzman has like fans still today. Oh, sure. Who um, are like, if Kurtzman had never left, who knows how great Mad Magazine would have been because he was a perfectionist genius, which mm -hmm. was his undoing. Like apparently he would miss publication dates because he was just tinkering with stuff endlessly. Everything needed to be tinkered with. And apparently he was really good at it. I read an article or an interview with Al Jaffe, who is the longest running cartoonist at MAD. Um, and he was saying like Kurtzman was the best editor he'd ever worked with, but everything needed editing. Everything needed tinkering, which made everything delayed and more expensive. And the the reason Kurtzman left was not because Gaines said, hey, you need to, to rein all this in or fired him or anything, but Gaines very wisely retained editorial control. So Kurtzman had to go ask Gaines for everything, and Kurtzman did not like that. Geniuses typically don't like that kind of thing. And so he struck out on his own after just a couple of years. Yeah, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, when they made that switch to the magazine, this is when they all of a sudden could do, like, TV shows right. and movies. They got well, a whole lot more political. Uh, and then, as we'll see, song parodies and stuff like that. Another big um, sort of longstanding tradition with MAD was um, skewering uh, marketing and PR and advertising. And they, uh, because they didn't have ads, and that was one of the things I loved about MAD, even though it cost a little more, is that every page was... Um, you know, some things were funnier than others, obviously, but every page had funny content on it. Right. Um, the the spoof ads to me were great. Um, everything they did was was funny because they didn't have to to sort of bow to the advertiser. And it, it really would have been I, I never saw any um, post 2001 editions. It would be really weird for me to see a mad magazine with a legitimate advertisement in it. I wouldn't know. I would look for the joke still somehow. Right, yeah, it's a little mind-warping when you were used to it for, for decades. Totally. You know, not. And, yeah, that was a big part of it, too, is like, I mean, that's that's probably the most ubiquitous way people are lied to on a daily basis is through advertising. So yeah. it was essential that they lampoon ads, too, just to – they couldn't just leave those alone. It would have been distinctly impure, and neither Harvey Kurtzman nor Bill Gaines would have stood for that for sure. All right, so Kurtzman um, leaves in 1956. Uh, this is what you were talking about with Hugh Hefner. He had his um, satirical humor magazine called Trump, believe it or not. Um, four issues. Uh, then he went on to work for the other one you mentioned, Humbug, which was only about 11 issues. But he, you know, like you said, he still has people that sort of bow to him today because he laid the groundwork and the foundation for 
sort of satire as we know it today. Yeah, he also went on to create um, a longstanding Playboy cartoon from the the 60s to the 70s called Little Annie Fanny. And it was just a dirty cartoon that apparently yeah. really fulfilled him as an artist. But um, yeah, he, he was just a legend, just as, as much as like Bill Gaines was, maybe more in some circles for sure. But after um, Kurtzman, and Kurtzman's very much credited with establishing the tone, the voice, the idea behind MAD mm-hmm. that was carried on essentially until 2018, maybe, as we'll see. But, um, and in turn also creating, laying the, the um, foundation for American satire to come, right? After that, a guy named Al Feldstein came on board and was, I get the impression, a little more of a workhorse um, and a little less of a endlessly tinkering perfectionist. And mm-hmm. he brought on some of the names that you are familiar with, like Mort Drucker and Al Jaffe and Don Martin and just these longtime mad contributors. Um, they they came on under Al Feldstein's overseeing ship. <laughs> <laughs> you like that, huh? Yeah, sure. In fact, uh, Senate committees should not be committees on oversight anymore. They should be on overseeing ship. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It's got a little more flair to it. Uh, so Feldstein, um, one of the key things besides, like you said, hiring you know some legendary staff, was bringing on a legendary mascot, and that is Alfred E. Newman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he named Alfred E. Newman or attached that name. Apparently that was a kind of a pseudonym. They used a lot of kind of goofy, funny pseudonyms in the office for different things. Alfred E. Newman was one of them. Um, but if you don't know anything about Mad Magazine and you've never picked up an issue, you still probably can look at the little little Opie Taylor, red-headed, gap-toothed, big-eared, uh, well, I was about to say kid, but um, it was always hard to determine right. Alfred E. Newman's age in a way, and that was part of the fun, I guess. Uh, but that was the mascot. Um, they wanted a mascot. They got one along with the, uh, the I don't know what you would call it, a slogan? Catchphrase? Uh, yeah, catchphrase, uh, which is, what, me worry? What, comma, me worry? Oh, that's funny. I always read it as, what, me worry? Oh, yeah? Yeah, wow. We're, we've got two different <laughs> brains, huh? I guess so. I mean, it's still the same thing, really. I guess. So he was the first one to bring that image. Um, I believe the... Uh, First cover was issue number 25, but he had been sort of used in the magazine previous to that. And in the mid-70s, uh, there was an interview where he said, you know, I got this thing from this postcard in the early 1950s that had the caption, me worry? <laughs> I like that. Or me worry? And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um in 1965, uh, this and of course, this is, you know, 10 years before he admitted this. But um, in 1965, Matt was actually sued by the widow of a cartoonist named Harry Spencer, mm-hmm. who said, hey, this postcard that you're going to talk about in 10 years was stolen from my husband's work. And he's had this copyright since 1914. It's uh, the name of the character is the original optimist or the me worry guy. And Mad in fighting the lawsuit said, all right, listen, we know this image has been used before besides us. So readers find uses of Alfred E. Newman out there 
and they came back with a bunch dating back to the 19th century. Yeah, they, they traced it all the way back. There was a couple of historians that are mentioned um, in a Paris Review article. It's, it's really interesting. It chronicles the evolution of Alfred E. Newman. But they, they traced it back to an 1894 play called The New Boy. And they think that it's probable that the, the character, that look, that face, is a mashup mm-hmm. of the two actors that played the lead in The New Boy. Um, Ron Howard? Yeah, Ron Howard and Ron Howard Sr. Yeah. Um, and this play like took America by storm. It was a big deal in the late 19th century. These actors were very much celebrated. And th- this, this character entered the pop culture and stayed, but over time, people forgot where he came from originally until, I mean, we're talking like the 2010s before somebody said, this is, it goes as far back as this for sure. Yeah. And uh, Dave was kind enough to include a bunch of cool uh, uses. Um, there was an auto parts store that used it, mm-hmm. uh, a soda, Happy Jack Soda in the 1930s, a pain reliever in 1908, um, all kinds of uses. And the judge basically was like, hey, listen, this is in the public domain. Everyone is using this. I don't know why, but everyone is using this goofy guy's face. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Mad Magazine, or I'm sorry, the um, uh, the original Alfred E. Newman painting was by Norman Mingo. And for Mad, they had some pretty strict rules of usage, which um, was you had to always have a forward, either a forward-facing face, like not from an angle or from profile right. or anything like that, um, or just fully the back of his head that had been done. And any other usage of the face that was any different had to go through what I sort of think was probably a pretty strict, um, like there was probably a pretty serious meeting at Mad Magazine if they wanted to change that in any way. Yeah, they'd be like, convince us. Why? Right, exactly. But that's why that that Alfred E. Newman is just so recognizable, even when he's, um, yeah. I remember he was uh, Lindy England. Wasn't that the the private at Abu Ghraib who had the picture of her taken, like pointing, oh. like with with gun fingers at a like a yeah. naked hooded, I don't remember, um, tortured prisoner? Yeah, I remember. Uh, that, they did Alfred E. Newman on the cover as her. Yeah, and and you knew exactly who he was spoofing, but you also could totally see that it was Alfred E. Newman. Uh, all of it is because that Norman Mingo one just hit it so perfectly out of the gate. Mm-hmm that there was just no reason to alter it at all. Yeah. And I don't know. I never really thought about it's so ubiquitous and so just sort of burned in my brain. I, I was a kid and it never occurred to me just what brilliant branding that was yeah. uh, to not only just have this mascot and slogan, uh, but to to not change it and have it appear in much the same way every single time that you saw it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a kid, you were being – I remember when I was first thinking about tattoos, I thought about getting Alfred E. Newman. Um, I I would like it more than what I ended up getting, yeah. but so I probably should have. Yeah. But it was such a sort of iconic and still is such an iconic brand mark. Yeah, same with the masthead, too, the logo, the shape of oh, the yeah. letters, spelling totally. out mad, all caps, that kind of thing. Um, just as much as him. The two went together just so perfectly well, for sure. Yeah. But because... They established that um, Harry Spencer did not have any sort of copyright over Alfred E. Newman or over that kid, that image. Mm-hmm. You could do um, and use Alfred E. Newman yourself if you wanted to be a big jerk 
and Mad couldn't do anything about it because they don't own the copyright to the image. It's in the he's in the public domain. But Alfred E. Newman himself, any usage that has ever been created for Mad, if you, you if you use that, they could sue your pants off. It's just if you went out and created a new Alfred E. Newman type, named it something different, then technically they couldn't do anything. But the whole world would be mad at you, I think, unless it was really great. I know a certain jerk in Kansas that's pretty great at Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> but And then one last thing about uh, Mr. A.E. Newman, that name was one of the hilarious, like, made-up names that they would use to, like, sign fake letters to the editor and that kind of stuff. Um, that's where they, they were like, I think this name goes with this guy very well. Totally. One of the many pseudonyms. Yeah. Uh, I was just kidding, by the way, about the jerk part. He knows who he is. Sure. And he'll laugh at this. You hope. All right. Should we take a break? I guess. All right. We're going to come back and talk uh, probably too briefly about some of these legendary staffers that they had for, you know, 50 years or so. We're going to staff it up. Hey everyone, host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep, along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight, and honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, as everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members, and we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive. 
from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey there, everybody. Here's some bonus stuff you should know. This time it's about traveling to Orlando for business. Orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings. Dr. Michael Edwards, CEO of Ocean Insight, said it best. Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. And when the day is done, you can kick off each evening at one of 46 Michelin-rated restaurants. What's not to love? So check out Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. Okay, Chuck, so I mentioned ourselves as the usual gang of idiots. It's what everybody at MAD called themselves and called the whole crew, and everybody was very happy to, to be called that. They were, everybody had a really good sense of humor is another way to put it. Most of them, as we'll see. Um, but I mentioned Al Jaffe earlier, and he apparently holds the Guinness record for longest career as a comic artist. He started yeah. drawing for MAD in 1955. Yeah. And when did he retire? Uh, he retired in 2020. Uh, and very sadly, uh, I mean, say sadly because he passed away, but he passed away at 102 mm -hmm. uh, on April 10th of this year, uh, 2023. So had a, I mean, just a legend. Uh, what a life. Um, ended up going away with Kurtzman uh, when he did Trump and Humbug, but came back to Mad Magazine and was most well known for doing the fold-in, which if you if you know Mad, you know the fold-in. Uh, if you don't, it was the very last uh, interior page of the magazine, like the the inside of the back cover, basically, mm -hmm. where you would. It was a visual trick where you would fold. You know, it would be a picture and it would have text at the bottom, and then when you folded it over in a certain way, it would form a new picture, and not only that, but all new text. Like I can't imagine laying these out was easy considering the text, like the picture is one thing, but to lay it out and have it say something different mm. is, is a whole other thing. And it also said and, some like significant stuff too. Like it was often about like taxes or the government doing something shady or something like that. Yeah. The two would always be, um, they would always sort of uh, link together. So whatever you had on that first initial thing might be, uh, it was kind of set up punchline basically is how it worked. For sure. Um, and he, in that interview I read with him, he said it take it took about two weeks to make one of those things. I believe it. And that um, the artists and I guess writers were all expected to produce twenty, and then later on twenty five pages of material a year. Um, and that was just the requirement. And if you hit it, it's not like you or didn't hit it, it's not like you weren't you were fired. But they did an annual trip abroad for like a week or two, all expenses paid by Mad. Um, and if you didn't hit your your quota, you weren't on that trip. Wow. That's pretty funny. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only kid who tried to guess what the fold-in image would be just by looking at the unfolded image. Sure. I used to stare at that thing trying to guess what it might be. Uh, and Jaffe was also uh, popular for something that I had the little side books I bought mm -hmm. 
of uh, snappy answers to stupid questions. Did you like those? Loved them. So do you have a favorite? Oh, no. Okay. You just loved them all? Like a favorite joke or a favorite book edition? A favorite edition? panel, yeah. A favorite snappy answers to stupid questions page. Do you have one? No. I was just asking if you Okay. Did. No, no, no. But I loved them. Okay. Um, what about – so that's Al Jaffe. That's right. We're moving on to Dick DeBart. I've never known how to say this man's name. Dick DeBartolo. DeBartolo, I think. He uh, was the one who wrote most of the parodies of TV uh, movies. Um, just essentially any satire of, of like one of those two things was probably written by him between um, 1964 to 2017. Yeah, and uh, Di Bartolo was born in 1945, so he was submitting by 1961 as a, like, 16- or 17-year-old wow. and getting some of that stuff in there. And the best I can figure is he was kind of a full-time staffer either at 20 or 21. That's really cool. He was just a kid and, uh, like you said, partnered with uh, Mort Drucker and the great Angelo Torres, who, as you'll see, is one of a— sort of group of legendary uh, Latin American uh, or Latin and then American writers. Mm -hmm. uh, he was Puerto Rican. And then they also had uh, a couple of guys that we're going to talk about named uh, Sergio Aragones and Antonio Projayas. Very nice. Oh, we're going like to talk that. about them now. Uh, so Projayas was the creator of Spy versus Spy, right? Yes. And one of the reasons... Cuban. Yeah. One of the reasons why he was so interested in the Cold War and, and all of the horribleness of it and futility of it. That was basically the ultimate message of spy versus spy is, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, you can nuke one another, but we all lose was yeah. like, that's the general theme. Um, but because he was Cuban and because he had been expelled from Cuba by Castro, which is a, like, man, if you were in the sixties, that's like one of the most political things you can do, be expelled from Cuba by <laughs> Castro. Yeah, go go to America and be famous and make lots of money. Exactly, but he was famous already in Cuba um, when he showed up uh, at the offices of MAD and apparently did not speak a lick of English, but his 14-year-old daughter did. So he brought her with him, and mm -hmm. she helped translate the interview and uh, basically got across that her father was interested in, in working for MAD, and Bill Gaines said, you're hired. Or if she, right. he probably said, tell him he's hired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, he passed away in 1998. Um, Sergio uh, Aragonis is still with us at 85 years old. Um, he is uh, Mexican and was a very successful uh, cartoonist in Mexico. Um, showed up in 1962. Asked for Prahaya saying, you know, I know you've got a, a guy here that could probably help interpret. Um, apparently that didn't work out. So he just said, all right, well, here's my cartoons. These one panels. Mm -hmm. And Matt was like, we don't really do these one panels. But then someone said, you know, I really like these. Maybe we can do, like, our magazine is so chock full of stuff. Maybe we can squeeze in even more by doing what's called marginals, which is in the margins of the magazine, they would sneak in these little one-panel cartoons. Yeah, like just very, they just made mad that one more thing. It was just one more thing that was like, oh, this is Mad Magazine, you know? Oh, yeah. I wonder if he also was responsible, you know, like the interstitial little cartoons of, you know, like the guy sweeping up the logo of bloopers and practical jokes with Dick Clark and Ed McMahon. Oh, they yeah. were very much like that. And I'm wondering if they hired him to do that, too. 
Hmm. I hope they did, because if not, they kind of ripped them off. You know what? I seem to remember knowing that to be true, but I'm not going to say absolutely, but that does really ring a bell. Okay, good, good. I'm glad. So we're going to say definitely maybe. There's another guy, too, that was worth um, mentioning. His name was Dave Berg. He did the yeah. lighter side of. Oh, yeah. Pretty funny, like, multiple panels of, you know, I guess pretty funny stuff. The one that I always remember, his drawing was amazing, too. Um, not not quite as, it was much more linear and angular than um, mm-hmm. more Drucker stuff, but still, you know, visually interesting. Um, there was a guy shaving in his beard, and he was halfway done when his, like, wife or girlfriend calls from the other room, like, I changed my mind. Keep your beard. And he's, like, making this face in the mirror. For some reason, 10-year-old Josh thought that was remarkable and, and remembered it. I don't even <laughs> think I laughed at it. But for some reason, it just stuck with yeah. me, right? It's funny how that stuff happens. Yeah, for sure. But he apparently was the um, one conservative, religious, white, suburban dude, um, uh, Gentile. Most of the other um, – well, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of the others in the whole conceit of Mad, especially earlier, was um, like Jewish. Yeah. So Dave Berg was just very much in tension, I guess, with the rest of the staff. Yeah. And Al Jaffe said that he kind of f- acted like he felt like he was keeping carrying the whole thing on his back. And the magazine, or just the conservative man, the magazine. Like it was all him or something like that. So he seems like a pretty interesting dude. But if you remember that that comic, the lighter side of, there was very frequently a um, late middle aged gentleman with like a pipe and a leisure suit. Yeah, he was always being put upon by hippies. I'm under the impression that that was him doing himself. I I'm trying to remember. Um, I'm trying to remember what that character looked like. He had glasses, whitish, shortish hair. Uh, and it was everything was almost always done from the bust up, with the pipe. Yes. Okay, I'm looking at him now. I think he that's sort of looks Dave like Berg. Hank Hill. Yeah, a little bit. Now that you mention it, for sure. I bet. I bet that totally is him. So that's Dave Berg. I think he was worth calling out for sure. Yeah. Um. You know, we did mention Mort Drucker, but uh, I wanted to to recognize that he passed away in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, and I think he was in his 90s. So like. These guys are living in their mid-80s to 90s and in, into the hundreds. Uh, not all of them, but, like, maybe there's something to to humor and laughter. Right. Being medicine, who knows. Uh, but we did mention Don Martin briefly. Uh, I wanted to talk a, a little bit more about mm-hmm. him because he was there from 1956 to 1988. Uh, was known as Mad's Maddest Artist. Uh, he did. Uh, he had a very distinct style that, uh, like you said earlier, was nothing like the sort of caricature realism of a Mort Drucker mm-hmm. or Taurus. Mm-hmm. Um, but very distinct style. Did a lot of um, poem parodies. Uh, did these single character, like single page character parodies. Like it would just be a big picture of like Moses, and then just a bunch of little like um, things about Moses, like a comment on the sandals or, you know, how he did his nails and, you know, a line pointing to this part on Moses's body. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those, um, but mostly did, uh, he had these comic strips. Um, they were, he did two to three per issue. Um, and they were maybe a couple of pages usually, but it was just sort of a good old fashioned comic strip. And that was sort of Don Martin's jam. Yeah. And everybody had a very long face and very long feet. Yeah, uh, it was just yeah. His stuff is unmistakable. You could spot it anywhere, even with your eyes closed. 
So the thing is, like you said, these people were living into their 80s, 90s, hundreds even. um, And a lot of them were working like up until very shortly before their death. So these people worked at this magazine, putting this magazine out for decades upon decades. And um, as a result, Mad had the same voice like all throughout. It was just the thing that changed was the stuff it was parodying, you know? Oh, yeah. So I just think that's really cool. It also explains totally. why in The Simpsons, the, um, when Bart and Milhouse are reading Mad Magazine, the, they're talking about Spiro Agnew and Bart and, <laughs> Bart and Milhouse go, they're talking about that Spiro Agnew guy again. He must work there. And I yeah. remember thinking the exact same thing because these uh-huh. guys are t- – by the way, Spiro Agnew was vice president to Nixon – yeah, yeah. Right. Just a. I remember. A that's how I knew that name. Yeah, exactly. Yes, for sure. Me too. I knew that name for a, a good six, seven years before I knew yeah. who he was, <laughs> and that uh-huh. that was like this kind of unspoken, unwritten tradition for kids that started reading it in like probably the early '80s onward, mm-hmm. because these dudes were still talking about Spiro Agnew in like 1986. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's no reason that a 12-year-old in the mid-'80s should know anything about Spirit. No, but I just thought that Simpsons joke was just dead on. That's pretty good. I don't remember that joke, but that's awesome. So another thing we need to talk about is a very big lawsuit. Um, They were no stranger to lawsuits. Uh, They were no stranger to the FBI kind of sniffing around every now and Mm -hmm. then um, because they were um, subversive and uh, counterculture. And so the FBI, of course, would always be interested in that. Um, but a big lawsuit happened in uh, 1961 when Mad released uh, a special called Sing Along with Mad, which had 20 song parodies of uh, popular music. And the first exhibit in the trial was uh, a musical salute to a hypochondriac um, sung to the tune of Irving Berlin's A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody called uh, Luella Schwartz Describes Her Malady. So the, the estate of Berlin was not uh, happy about this. Um, sued and the judge, and this this ended up being a landmark decision because mm-hmm. it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Like any any satire and uh, that we you know enjoy today, we can kind of trace back to this lawsuit where a judge said, as a general proposition, we believe that parody and satire are deserving of substantial freedom, both as entertainment and as a form of social. And this is the key part, and as a form of social and literary criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mad Magazine did that. Boom. So, yeah, the estate of Irving Berlin didn't know who they were taking on. No. Yeah. But that's pretty cool. And um, They're taking on freedom. <laughs> right. Dave, Dave traces that straight to Weird Al Yankovic, which, I mean, that's a pretty obvious um, example. Like his parody music, you can, like, yeah. he can just do that. Apparently he asks, typically. Um, but Weird Al, to bring it full circle, is a huge mad fan, not that surprising, sure. who made it onto the cover in 2015, and it was one of those rare covers where uh, Alfred E. Newman's expression is different. He actually looks mm. concerned and weirded out being close to Weird Al, and Weird oh, Al really? has the Alfred E. Newman expression on his face. Oh, very interesting. Yes. Man, we just wrapped up like eight different parts of this episode into <laughs> one cover. I'll have to look that up. Um, Mad Magazine was very popular. Uh, it reached its peak in the sort of the late 60s and 70s um, at a circulation rate uh, that topped out at a little more than 2.1 million uh, magazines, which is a lot. It was uh, like 
just behind Time and Newsweek <laughs> and circulation numbers. Um, I, I never really c- kind of knew how many people read magazines back oh, then. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, I mean, two point one uh, in circulation is that's a lot of folks reading that. Yeah, I, I think people really st- kept reading like news, uh, Newsweek and Time and U.S. News and World Report until the early early two thousands. Like magazines were a thing until then, and the internet said, "I got this." Yeah, and that's sort of you know the story of Mad to a large degree, sure. uh, even though their readership did slip um, after the nineteen seventies. I think it was probably doing all right in the eighties. And Dave makes a great point that like everyone probably says, you know, my my five or six years with Mad were the best mm-hmm. uh, because those are the ones that you knew and loved so much. Right. <laughs> but um, I think we all know that the 80s Mad magazines were the best. Far and away. <laughs> and, you know, they they skewered everyone. They they didn't pick sides. Obviously, they were, um, you know, lefties in general, but they would they would make fun of all politics. But, you know, as with all magazines, it would eventually dwindle. Um, they tried to save it at various points. Um, I remember when they moved to L.A. Uh, in the late uh, 20-teens, mm-hmm. I, I knew a few people. Like, they basically hired a new staff of, like, kind of cool young comedy people. Mm-hmm. And I knew a, a few of them that ended up working for the, the newer iteration of MAD. Mm-hmm. Um, but sadly, that wouldn't last too long either. Right. Oh. Do, who? Anybody you want to name check? I'm curious. Uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, Brian Posehn worked for him, I oh, think. Oh, cool. Yeah, he is cool. Uh, I don't know about young. And though. then, well, that's true. Posehn's like our age or a little older. Um, Allie Gertz, uh, she did, uh, I'm not sure if she still does it, but did a Simpsons podcast for Max Fun mm-hmm. and is a singer, sort of song parody person herself and uh, met her to Max Fun. She co-hosted a, a trivia with me. Um, Allie's great. She was one of the editors. And then there was someone else, too, I knew. And I was just they were all very excited, you know, at the time, obviously, to sort of take on this huge uh, mantle like comedy brand. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, with these huge corporate mergers, uh, Time Warner, uh, I believe, um, owned them in the 2000s. They merged with AT&T and that was sort of the death knell. Yeah. And so finally in 2019, um, Mad Magazine stopped publishing original content. They still put out issues once in a while. And if you look at the cover of the issue, you're like, oh, this is new. Like they're parodying everything everywhere all at once. But right. Um, or say like, um, what was another one? Um, oh, I can't remember right now. But current stuff, Westworld, right? Um but that Westworld issue was all about tech. So they would go back and look through mm-hmm. all the archives and find some good stuff about tech, put it all together in a compilation issue, and then slap like a current thing on the cover. That's what they're doing right. today. Um, so there's still – that's got to be a pretty fun job going through the Mad Archives to pull, pull oh, together sure. new new issues, compilation issues. I know a couple of guys who might be pretty good at yeah, it. Yeah, but that's the, that's <laughs> the state of Mad today for sure. Um, and I, I wanted like seeing what happened to Matt or where it is today really kind of drives home what our colleague Jack O'Brien did for mm-hmm. Cracked. Cracked had gone the way of Mad easily in the 90s, like long before, like while Mad was still doing pretty good. Cracked had just kind of limped off and was just a brand somebody owned somewhere. And apparently Jack went to the owner, found out who owned it and went and said, hey, um, can I try to re- re- um, revitalize cracked on the internet and whoever owned it said do your best and he did yeah like cracked the website like just kind of blew up and introduced a whole new 
generation of people that cracked. Yeah, it was great. Hello, Jack. Uh, listen to the Daily Zeitgeist. He's, he's, he and Miles have been doing that show for a while yeah, now. they've been at it daily for a long time. And you've been a guest more than once, and I've never been two on Two times. It. I'm a member of the two-timer club. That's right. I'm a no-timer. <laughs> um, Mad TV is something we should mention. Um, that ran for 15 seasons, believe it or not. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, and I, I watched it first uh, from 95 to 2009, mm -hmm. and they had little nods. Uh, Alfred E. Newman was there uh, early on for a few seasons. Mm -hmm. uh, spy versus Spy, they would do these little uh, animated Spy versus Spy shorts. Mm -hmm. um, but it was it was a good show, man. And they and if you look at their roster of people, like a lot of them went on to be big big names in comedy. Right. Um, Ike Barinholtz, Deborah Wilson, Nicole Sullivan, of course, uh, the great Alex Borstein. Uh, Orlando Jones, Will Sasso. It's where uh, Key and Peele met there. Oh, yeah. Uh, Andy Daly, Taryn Killam. Neat. Just uh, like a sort of a who's who of comedy people. Okay, great. Yeah, so Matt. Did you never watch not it? Not really. I mean, here or there. Oh, it was good. It was not in my wheelhouse at the time. I, I don't know what I was into, but it wasn't that. Yeah. Um, it might have been like when I would have watched it would have been during a time when Saturday Night Live was actually good. So I might have been watching that. <laughs> or Ooh. I'll bet. I was watching Mystery Science Theater 3000 instead. I'll bet that's what I was watching. Were you only allowed one comedy mm -hmm. show? Okay. <laughs> I was I had a lot of self-discipline back then and I was only I only allowed myself one comedy show. Oh, that's good stuff. So, you got anything else about Mad Magazine? No, I mean that's that's the briefest of overviews. This is one that, you know, we could go on for days, but uh we'll we'll keep it at an hour. Yeah, we'll keep it at an hour and we'll always keep Mad Magazine in our hearts. That's right. Since Chuck said that's right, everybody, that means it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this uh, Lady Trucker or Lady Trucker. Lady Trucker, one more time. <laughs> hey, guys, love the show and listen to it uh, at least three or four days a week. I was listening to the trucking episode on my way to work. Really loved it. I work for a 3PL, third-party logistics mm -hmm. uh, company, and uh, we are basically a company that rents truckers to move shipments for our customers. Uh, basically, we're the middleman. Uh, the interest industry is currently only made up of 13.7% women, and there's a really cool organization called Women in Trucking. Uh, you can find them at womenintrucking.org. Uh, their mission is to help bring more women into the industry and help them overcome any obstacles in their paths. Uh, the company I work for is uh, designated a women in trucking company with over half of our staff, including the owner, being women. Awesome. Uh, the women are so supportive of one another and make sure to help each other out whenever possible. It's a really great industry to be a part of, and uh, groups like this help to make that possible every day. I hope there are some young women out there who are listening to your episode and started thinking about joining this field. Uh, trucking used to be just for men, but it's for us too. Uh, keep up the great episodes, and that is Amanda... From Pittsburgh. Thanks a lot, Amanda. What a great email. And yeah, shining some light into some quarters we weren't fully aware of in the hopes of luring people to those new quarters. Yeah. So if that piqued your interest and you're a woman, you can check out womenintrucking.org or maybe read the article, How Female Truckers Are Changing the Industry. Uh, that is on DAT.com. And that might further pique your interest because, hey, you can make 100 grand a year from what Thanks. I hear. Well, thanks again, Amanda, and uh, thanks to everybody who writes in on a regular basis or even one time. We always appreciate your emails, even if we don't get a chance to read them on the air or respond. 
We hear you and we appreciate you. So never forget. Hashtag never forget that. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Amanda did and like everybody else does, you can send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold-pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Hey, everybody. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.